Guys and gals of the Bible. Oh, I think I'm on twice here. We've been doing a series just looking at various individuals who lived lives centuries ago but have got something to say to us. Every one of us here, everyone in the world, is unique. We are all made in God's image, but there are a huge range of factors that affect us. Our personalities, our genetic makeup, you may have got your dad's nose. Our intrinsic gifts and abilities, which may or may not be developed as we grow up. (coughs) But also we're affected by the country that we live in, by the family that we belong to, by our early life experiences, both good and bad. We're affected by our education, our employment. As we grow up, we're influenced by key relationships, significant friends and colleagues. My First boyfriend at university introduced me to interwar jazz and Shostakovich, neither of whom I'd ever encountered before. When I met John, I introduced him to malt whiskey, Guinness and Earl Grey. Still drinking all of them. So we're all a bundle of huge differences which make us unique. A bundle of, of qualities and experiences. And that means we are uniquely able to be used by God for his kingdom. We've got a culture that is very good at telling us that we are the wrong age or the wrong gender or the wrong shape or we've got the wrong background or the wrong education or the wrong experience to be anything other than useless. But God is the opposite. We are, nothing about us is wrong for him to use us. Whatever we're like, there's a place for us in his kingdom and a place that only we can fill because of what's happened to us and what we're like. So it doesn't matter what we feel about ourselves, That's the truth. We're in God's image, we're in his kingdom, and he wants us for his service. So far in this series of Guys and Girls from the Bible, we've looked at people who have stepped out in faith. Noah, Daniel, Lydia. And we've looked at a couple of people who've really struggled to hold on to their trust in God. Thomas, Job. And now we've got another group of three, and these characters, Miriam, who I'm going to talk about tonight, Gideon, and Timothy, the thing that links them is the fact that God developed what was in them, developed a potential, and used the raw ingredients to create something amazing for his kingdom.
Like many women in the Old Testament, Miriam lurks in the margins of narratives which were transcribed by men and reflect a male-dominated culture. She's actually a key player whose story has been largely overtaken by her more famous brothers. However, actually, if it wasn't for Miriam doing what she did, one of those brothers wouldn't even be here to tell the tale. So we're going to look at three episodes from her life. So we first encounter her in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, which was the first part of our reading. About three and a half thousand years ago, and remember if we're thinking that where Mark is is sort of creation and over there's revolution, I guess probably the window with the flowers is about three and a half thousand years ago on our timeline along that wall. The Hebrews were an enslaved race living in Egypt and subject to brutal treatment. Eager to keep the population down, the Egyptian overlords decreed that Jewish male babies should be killed at birth. Now, Miriam's mother had already managed to ensure the survival of one son, Aaron. Three years later, she gave birth again in an even more oppressive climate. Basically, the way it worked was that everybody had to register when they were pregnant, and then nine months later, the midwives were instructed to throw any baby boy, Jewish baby boy, into the Nile. Now, funnily enough, the midwives were rather reluctant to do this. So then it became a job that was given to the soldiers, according to Jewish tradition. So to be born a Hebrew male was an incredibly risky business, both for the baby and for the family. She's traditionally thought of to have been about six years old when her youngest brother, Moses, was born. And it was Miriam who was entrusted with watching over her baby brother as he floated down the Nile. Clever mum. Well, she'd thrown him in the Nile, but in a basket. She was not only caring as a big sister, but Miriam also demonstrated real quick-wittedness, the gift of the gab, and courage when Pharaoh's daughter discovered the infant, I mean, this is royalty. She's a slave girl. She realised that when Pharaoh's daughter thought, oh, baby, gorgeous, want to look after him, she couldn't personally support a breastfeeding baby. But Miriam joined up the dots and proposed someone who just happened to be producing milk, her baby brother's mum. I wonder if any of you recall that level of care from an older family member. Perhaps you had someone in the family who was an ally when you got into trouble. Perhaps there was someone you fought with at home, but you knew that they would look after you in the playground. When I was little, my eldest sister was the one that helped me tidy my bedroom when the mess absolutely defeated me. And she made me doll's clothes. I've still got them. And later on, when she went off to university, I know that she prayed for me. And she even tried to explain bits of the Bible in her letters home to me. So I just want you to take a moment to think about your 
family members. And ask God to show you how he has used those people to help develop you. It has to be said that sometimes even negative relationships can shape us in a positive way. Uh, there's something called the listening project. It's just uh, overhearing people's conversations on Radio 4. And a couple of weeks ago, I remember uh, this son talking to his dad and discovering that the dad's lifelong commitment to vulnerable children as a social worker was because he himself had had a violent father. So the negative of his childhood was turned into a positive in the way that he then cared for children. So let's hopefully give thanks just for a minute for those people in our family who have shaped us. Miriam is a great example of practical, loving care and of the profound influence that any one of us can have on family members. We might be the very people that God wants to use to help them be rescued by Christ. Your brothers and sisters, even your parents, might be hugely irritating but you might be the only Christian that they relate to. So how might that shape the way that you behave toward them? The amount of time you spend with them? The tone of voice you use to them? Numbers 26 tells us that Miriam was born into the tribe of Levi, and that was a group of people who, as she became an adult, would be reserved by God for special priestly ministry. Of course, that did only mean the males. Although she was the eldest, Miriam would have to watch her middle brother take the lead as high priest. It must have been really easy in that culture to think, who am I? I don't matter, I'm just a girl. I'm so profoundly grateful that I live now because I, I would have gone spare about 200 years ago. You know, girls didn't get educated. Girls were stuck in the home. You were a second-class citizen. But God didn't think Miriam was second-class. God noticed her, and he had a key role for her too. By the time that the exodus took place, when God enabled the Hebrews to escape from Egypt, Miriam was probably... 86? Uh, Old Testament dates about ages are, are sometimes uh, not necessarily entirely literal, simply because they use the word 40 to mean a very, very long time. So someone could be you know, 40 and then 80 and then 120 because they were just multiplying the very long timeses. But she was certainly old and mature. And she was described in Micah chapter 6 as a leader of the people alongside her brothers, Aaron and Moses. Now, inspiring and organising people is something that eldest children are often really skilled at. <clears throat> Even as a child, my eldest niece, Hannah, 
soon became the organiser of her younger sister's parties. And it's something she was really good at that did go alongside a strong pinch of bossiness. Many of today's leaders were the eldest in their family. People like uh, Hillary Clinton, Richard Branson, Beyonce. So perhaps Miriam's natural family role helped prepare her for being a representative for a wider sector of the community. As a leader, doubtless Miriam knew her people. Unlike her brother, Aaron, she wasn't withdrawn from daily society for special priestly duties. And she hadn't been separated from the people like her youngest brother Moses with his alien Egyptian upbringing. Instead, Miriam and the Hebrews had a shared life experience. She spoke their language. They got her. She was one of the people. So what qualities have we naturally got that God might use? What is our unique situation in which he can work through us? You might be someone who goes off and travels. You might be someone who stays in Aldridge all their life. It's immaterial to God because wherever you are, whatever you're like, he can and will and wants to use you. Everything about our lives matters to God and everything can be transformed by him if we offer it to him. So what we saw in a child of Miriam, her watchfulness, her courage in speaking out, those are qualities that God clearly developed for, the purposes, for his purposes by the time we next encounter her. So Exodus 15 verse 20 describes her as a prophet, which in the Old Testament meant a person who was attuned to the will, commandments and nature of the Lord, called specifically by God to speak out in his name. Someone who could confidently declare the word, his word to the people. There's very few female prophets in the Bible, and Miriam was the first of them. After the dramatic nighttime pursuit of the Hebrews by the Egyptians across the Red Sea, which was recounted in Exodus 14, if you ever want to read it, Miriam and Moses led their people in prophetic worship, not only reflecting on what had just happened to the Egyptians, but also declaring God's future triumph over Israel's enemies. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In your unfailing love you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Terror and dread will fall on them. Sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. It's a song that expresses awe at God's power. Delight in his compassion. Satisfaction at victory over oppression and complete dependence on his might. This song of Moses and Miriam, 
it's, it, the, the way it's, the scholars think it probably happened is either Moses sung it all and then all the men sung it back, and then Miriam sung it all and then all the women sung it back, or they sung a stanza each and men sung it, women sung it. But there was a very much a sense that the two of them were leading it together. But then, towards the end, it, it's not repeated verbatim um, in the text, but that's how they understand it probably happened. But towards the end, Miriam also encouraged the women to make music and dance, leading an overflow of praise and thankfulness to God, who had so dramatically saved them all. So here is Miriam, who from a really humble beginnings as a Hebrew slave, has been raised up by God to become a respected leader of the people, a confident instigator of worship, a prophet specially chosen by the Lord to pass on his intentions to the children of Israel. Today, we would expect to see her ministering in the big arena at New Wine. We'd expect her to have a large following for her blog. She was a woman of standing. Now, a process like that, from nothing to up there, a process like that doesn't happen without our cooperation, our willingness to obey, our laying down of our own ambitions for the sake of God's kingdom. Miriam has learned to look out for others rather than herself, to serve the people, perhaps at the expense of her own personal life, and to declare not her own ideas, but the messages of God. In a male-dominated culture, Miriam is a rare female voice. And, you know, that's not an easy role to have. I always think of Angela Merkel, you know, surrounded by crowds of men and having to step forward. But she's learnt to be dependent on God, the God who raised her. However... When we next encounter Moses' sister in Numbers chapter 12, something's changed. And if you want to turn to that passage, it's the one that was starting on page 148. Slipping up as a believer happens so easily because Satan is great at twisting good into bad ever so gently tempting us to go beyond the place where we are best at serving God so in Miriam's case he nudged her natural and God-given strength into being independence her selflessness into envy and self-pity. Her religious fervour into judgmentalism. It's easy to see how it might have happened. Over the years, Big Sis has had to watch as little brother takes centre stage, granted God's special authority to lead the people of Israel. Now, she's a big sister. She probably always looked out for him. And now it appears that she is very concerned that he has made a big mistake. 
Since the days of Abraham, there existed the guideline that Israelites should only marry amongst their own people so that partners of other faiths wouldn't lead them to desert God. And yet, here was Moses having married a non-Hebrew. A less pure motive might have been that Miriam, as a sort of first lady of the Hebrews, suddenly had a rival. She may have had to share her privileges, her preeminence with Moses' wife, who wasn't even Jewish. Now, if God had asked Miriam to tell her brother off, I think it would have been a really different story, particularly as verse 3 stresses that <coughs> Moses was, had no arrogance. He would have taken it. But notice, Miriam doesn't hear this from God. It's a conviction fermented by gossip with her middle brother, Aaron. And verse 2 is a real giveaway. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? Despite cloaking their motives with a concern for religious purity, the siblings' tone of resentment and self-righteousness is really obvious. Miriam and Aaron, and since she is mentioned first, which usually women are not mentioned before men, and the fact that she was the eldest, it's, it's likely that she started the conversation. They're actually really fired up, not by God's agenda, but by their own. Why is Moses allowed to get away with it? Who does he think he is? He's not the only one with a hotline to God. You know, we're just as holy. Miriam's clearly forgotten her dependence on God. Forgotten that it's, it's up to God what happens and how he treats his children. Forgotten that her wants aren't the issue. So God acts. He personally visits Moses and his elder siblings and firmly reminds them that it is him, not them, who's in charge. I have to say, when I first read this, it's a bit like the reading we had this morning, I just thought, this is not fair. Aaron and Miriam both slip up. Miriam gets punished. Now, she has a skin disfigurement. The Old Testament word leprosy often didn't mean what we now think is of as leprosy. It just meant a, you know, some kind of skin condition that wasn't great. Um, but how come Aaron didn't get that? Well, it might reflect the fact that this was a text written in a male-dominated culture. Or it might reflect the fact that it was Miriam who took the lead in the complaining. But... Well, I've had to realise in just studying this a bit further that the context we have to see this passage in is not through the perspective of feminist resentment but of God's way of bringing Miriam back to the heart of her relationship with God. He has watched over this girl and guided her since she was a tiny person in Egypt. He has loved her 
He has inspired her. He has deepened their personal relationship. So is God just going to wash his hands of her? In effect, say, well, whatevs, and let her go astray? No. Miriam's too precious to him. Hard though it seems to our modern culture, God's discipline springs from love. And Miriam's punishment, I think, is highly visible for a reason. When people who live in the spotlight fall down, it sends a message to the whole community, learn from this. When major church leaders are discovered to have embezzled money or committed adultery, it reminds all of us that no one is exempt from God's requirement of integrity and purity. No one can let power go to their head when their job is only to serve God's purposes. Of course, a cover-up causes much less fuss and is much less uncomfortable but it means that the poison might spread. It means that other people might think, well, God's high standards don't really matter. Aaron immediately gets the message and pleads for forgiveness. Moses loves his sister and begs for healing. And the punishment is transmuted to just seven days, which was the ritual time allocated for uncleanness. Miriam has had to learn that she, yes, needs to use the gifts that God has developed within her, but also humbly accept the limitations of the role she's been given. She needed to remember that what she'd surely learned through the years of watching her famous brothers, the gift of grace. She needed to recall that God observed her and loved her despite the brighter limelight of Moses and Aaron. This summer, we mourned the loss of Rob Cook, the big personality who for so many was Mr. Alpha. But what I've subsequently learned this summer was that actually it was his big sister, Jill Carr, who first got involved with the APC Alpha course. It was her who got Rob on board, and she has been the one organising everything and making sure it happened. When she eventually joins Rob in heaven, she will stand in no lesser light of glory before her maker. But meanwhile, Jill strikes me as someone who is gracious, she doesn't need to claim any earthly status. She is confident that God knows how each of us have served him, whether we're in the spotlight or in the background. I wonder if when Miriam finally died and was buried some years later, she might have learnt what Jill has and might have been able to echo the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Miriam was brilliant when she was depending on God. Each one of us here is unique and wonderfully made. Each one of us has a vital role to play in the kingdom, living out our lives under God's reign. God knows what we're like. He knows our natural skills and abilities. And he actually knows the things that we don't even guess about. He's got gifts we haven't even received yet. He understands how our circumstances have shaped us. And he also knows the way that we have the potential to develop. So my prayer for us is that like Miriam, we each allow God to be in charge, offering all that we are in the service to the King, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and keeping in step with his will so that we can be content to serve wherever he puts us. Amen.